I'm wondering if you could read My Mother's Teeth on page 18. Sure. That is one of my favorites. And I will cry. Full disclosure. My mother had like dentures and and I always thought that uh, there's like one pair of dentures and it turned out there are lots of dentures. So anyway, this one's called My Mother's Teeth. Hey, poets and poetry lovers. Welcome to Having a Coke with You, the Poetry Society of New York podcast sponsored by the Radio Drama Network. Today, I'm so excited to be sitting down with, quite honestly, one of my favorite poets of all time. Victoria Chang. Oh my God. Victoria Chang's forthcoming book of poems with my back to the world will be published in 2024. Her most recent book of poetry, The Trees Witness Everything, was published by Copper Canyon Press and Corsair Books in the UK in 2022 and was named one of the best books of 2022 by The New Yorker and The Guardian. Her nonfiction book, Dear Memory, was published in 2021 and was named a favorite nonfiction book of 2021 by Electric Literature and Kirkus. Opit was named a New York Times notable book, a Time must-read book, and received the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, the Annisfield Wolf Book Award in Poetry, and the Penn Volker Award. It was also long listed for a National Book Award and was named a finalist for the National Books Critics Circle Award and the Griffin International Poetry Prize. She has also received a Guggenheim Fellowship and the Chowdhury Prize in Literature. She is the incoming born chair in poetry at Georgia Tech. Victoria's Book of Poems, Obit, is one of my favorite poetry collections of all time. I have honestly never been able to read it all the way through in one sitting as I just start sobbing. It is a heart-wrenching collection that completely redefines the genre. I am so honored to be sitting down with Victoria today, and I cannot wait for y'all to listen in. As with every episode of this podcast, the first thing I asked Victoria was about her poetry origin story. Take a listen. It's interesting thinking about poetry as an origin story to begin with, because I feel like as a poet, I'm always originating <laughs> or origining. Um, I'm, I'm always rediscovering poetry in really interesting new ways. Um, every single day, I feel that way. But I think, I think that doesn't really answer your question. And I think for, for me, I was lucky to grow up in the public school system at, in Michigan, and poetry was a part of the elementary school system at the time. Like they would just make us literally little kids in elementary school write poems, and then they would award everyone a prize. So everyone won first place, second place, third place, you know, it, everybody was always winning little prizes. And then they would put it together in a little spiral bound pamphlet thing. And oftentimes I would be somehow drawing the covers for those. <laughs> and so it was a really lovely growing up experience in like maybe first grade, second grade, third grade, that kind of thing. And that was really my first introduction to poetry. Otherwise I wouldn't have known what a poem was. And so, yeah, I'm thankful to the school systems for introducing me to poetry. I definitely think that it really takes just one person to change so much. And I think about how in our school system, it was probably one person that had this love for poetry and spearheaded some kind of poetry initiative in the school system that I happened to grow up in. It, it just made me realize that how we each can have such a big influence and how 
you know, children grow up. And so I don't know if I would have discovered it. I'm kind of like um, protean or polymathy and not at all bragging, but I'm just sort of all over the place, interested in just about everything and everyone. And I think that, you know, given that now I know that I've lived until this length of time, I probably would have stumbled upon poetry or a poet somehow at some point in my life. So it could have been high school, college, it could have been much later. It's hard to say for me. I mean, it could have been like now could have been my first time interacting with poetry. So I I don't know if it's inherent in me, but I do think curiosity is inherent in me. And in that way, um, an interest in art, in, you know, visual art, especially, and maybe language could have been a part of that or not. I'm not sure. Next, Victoria and I talked about her educational experiences and the teachers that changed her life. Take a listen. I feel lucky. In high school, I had some really amazing English teachers, and I went to a pretty large public high school in Michigan, and there are these two English teachers. One, her name was Ruth Lineweber. She was this wacky, okay? She was just you know, she had, she, it, I, I could tell that she had put curlers in her hair every night. Um, she wore frilly blouses with like little skirts and little ballet shoes and jumped around reciting Emily Dickinson. She could recite so many poems. Yeah, she made us memorize poems. She made us write poems and um, was constantly just yelling poems at us. And I loved her. And um, then I had this other teacher, James Corcoran, who just read us, stood in front of the classroom and read us like short stories and novels every class. And, you know, we didn't have to do much else, but sit there and listen to him read us stories. And that was my English, that was my English experience in high school. So I feel like I was lucky in that way. Um, And then I went to college and I sought out poetry a little bit more because of those experiences. So I took some classes and things like that, but never really understood that I, you know, I could actually write poetry, you know, more regularly, I guess. And so it was just always a part of my life in some way, um, you know, just kind of ancillary. I was always interested in it, always reading and, and, and writing here and there. So off and on. Next, I asked Victoria about the poems that changed her life. Specifically, what were the first poems and poets that you fell in love with? Take a listen. Yeah. So I think that falling in love with a poem is interesting because I think so much of our education is based on what other people ask you to read. And it's not, it's not until you kind of become a little bit of your own tastemaker that I think that you could be like, oh, you kind of start looking around a little bit more. Um, But I, you know, when I, if I think about like when I was really young and when I was first introduced to poetry, I really loved that um, short poem by Emily Dickinson, which is I'm Nobody, Who Are You? I loved that poem when I was little. I'm not sure why. I mean, I just felt like I could relate to it, probably. Um, The anonymity aspect of everyone, you know, as a child and also being, uh, you know, like a a marginalized person in a mostly white um, 
Jewish community, actually. And yeah, so this is I'm Nobody, Who Are You by Emily Dickinson, Psalm 260. I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us, don't tell. They'd advertise, you know, how dreary to be somebody, how public like a frog, to tell one's name the live long June to an admiring bog. I love when poems have that kind of weird other language from other sources that make it seem interesting. I think that little poem is really cool. And then to the admiring bog, I think is always really funny to me when I think about the present day is like everyone is looking for attention, but who's really listening? It's a bog. Oh man, I love that poem. I, I just, I love Emily Dickinson. I love um, my favorite, the My Life Had Stood, A Loaded Gun in Corners Till the Day, The Owner Passed, Identified, and Carried Me Away. I mean, Dickinson's legacy and effect on American poetry, and poetry globally for that matter, is unparalleled. Um, I would love to hear another poem that you've fallen in love with, perhaps something a bit more contemporary. This is a poem in this book that I think is really excellent. It's a poem called The Reinhardt Frames by Cesuayo Lafanza. And it's a part of the African Poetry Book Series. And this book, I guess, was re received the Sillerman First Book Prize for African Poets. And it was published by the University of Nebraska Press. It's a really interesting book because it has all these ekphrastic poems, you know, based on visual art. But then also does this thing where there's so many centos. So there's a different poems called frame one, frame two, frame three. And they're all, you know, like lines from other people's poems. Maybe I'll read one of those. Let me see if I can find one. Maybe I'll just read frame one. Um, but think about it while I'm reading this. Every single line is written by someone else. And yet it coheres in some really cool, wacky way. This is called frame one. And they all look like this. And they have like a line on the top and a line on the bottom, a long line. And because I mean to live transparently, I am here, bear with me, describing the content. What began it all was the bright bone of a dream I could hardly hold. The sky was gray, but the sun was making little silver promises, a perturbation of the light, the wind tilting slowly, thin collars of fog, autumn's mist pressed to ashes. I stretched all senses. I bended into peculiar angles, a public breathing through the night. Forgotten names sang through my head, names meant to conjure sultry nights. I lingered a little to listen to the singing in my ears, the perfect, the terror, the musculature. I was somehow attuned to it all, and I began to tremble so violently. My tongue was difficult, voice still a well of dark water, a prayer. My eyes grew dim and I could no more gaze. I don't know what I'm becoming that breaks what's left of what's human in me. It's a really interesting poem. And it's like, it's a great poem to start the book, which is all about see seeing. But it's, you know, it's like, you don't know exactly, there's no narrative necessarily, but you get a wash, you know, like a, 
it just get a sense of this person finding oneself or trying to find oneself. I've never actually heard of that collection, but I am going to the University of Nebraska Press's website right after this and ordering it. God, that's fantastic. Um, I tend to gravitate towards contemporary genre betting poetry personally, you know, much like your own. Uh, you edited Asian American Poetry, The Next Generation in 2004, which is a fantastic anthology of the work of, um, at the time, up and coming Asian American poets. So I know you're professionally quite familiar with contemporary poetry, but what do you tend to gravitate towards in your personal poetry reading practice? What are your contemporary and older poetry recommendations? Gosh, I have such varied taste. I am interested in poems or ways of writing or ways of thinking that seem really different and unique. Um, and not necessarily new, right? But just a combination of a person's unique way of thinking and viewing the world with something interesting, whether it's the language or the syntax or the way it looks on the page, you know, I mean, I get a lot of books in the mail and also, you know, seek out a lot of books in the mail and, and online. And, and so I'm constantly reading And this year, I've been reading a lot because I'm edit, doing a lot of editing. And so I see a lot of interesting things come through and I just wait for that thing to kind of catch. And so I've been reading a ton of contemporary poetry, but I'm also, I'm also reading like a lot of old stuff. I have a Saturday morning Zoom poetry group that we've been meeting for years. Um, and it's filled with people who are way more knowledgeable than me and older. And so it's been a lovely experience to kind of read a Wallace Stevens poem with them or read Right now, who are you reading? I can't even remember. Oh, because we're in transition. So there's a new person, like one of our new people. Like every, every person gets to pick um, poems by, by people who are no longer alive. And so we just finished reading a whole bunch of Rilke poems. And yeah, and uh, so pers like a person can pick um, a series of poems. And we had read George Oppen um, recently, and I had picked... Marian Moore's The Octopus. And so we're constantly reading, you know, old stuff. And so I'm kind of into both. You know, I feel like it's all on the same electric wire is something I've been thinking about, the wire for some reason. And it's just um it's good to know what people were doing before us. Because it's it is a little bit, I mean, it is cyclical, I think, to some extent, but how are we changing is interesting to me too. Wire. That's such a fascinating statement and image and also, I think, a TV show that I believe my partner has watched. Um, can you unpack that a little? What does The Wire represent to you? The Wire? I don't know. I've just been using that. I think I've used the word wire three times in the, in the last week. So I kind of get stuck on certain things. And yeah, there's, I'm working, um, before I got in here, I was working on a manuscript that I'm working on. And I think there's a wire in there too, but I can't remember what's on the wire, but two things are always on the wire and it's always the same. And it's something about like the wire being like holding the same things. Like maybe it's like grief and joy, or, you know, it's like a lot of times they're perhaps things that are the opposites 
but I think they're the same wire and they're not on the same wire, but they are the wire. So I don't know why this idea of the wire has been sticking with me. And then oddly, I was looking at Renee Gladman's book, um, Plans for Sentences, and here are all these wires that she has in these beautiful illustrations. And um, so, yeah, it, there's just a lot of wires in going my my mind. Next, Victoria and I talked about her super secret poetry group that she's in. And honestly, I want an invite. <laughs> Take a listen. The Saturday Morning Poetry Group is this pandemic started poetry group that includes some um, pretty amazing poets. And it's kind of like, uh, like, a, like a super secret group, but everybody's been talking about it. So I hear all the people in the group have not kept their promise to keep it super secret. It's called the Unicorns. And I can't remember why it's called the Unicorns. I think in a Wallace Stevens poem, there was a unicorn or something and um, someone named it that. But there are some really cool poets in there and um, maybe I'll just name two. <laughs> I don't know if I should name any, but like the, the, the most amazing poets in there that I learned so much from every single Saturday um, is Robert Hess and Brenda Hillman. So those two poets are like, oh my gosh, I sit there and I'm stunned by what comes out of their mouth, like kind of speechless, actually. I'm there to, to be educated <laughs> and just to be in their presence, I feel. Um, there are also a lot, quite a few, there are 11 of us. There are also quite a few fiction writers in there um, that are also fiction writers that are interested in poetry and maybe their, their fiction writing explores has sort of like poetic language or lyric lyricism or or they've always read poetry um they think like poets or they're just kind of one of them calls himself a failed poet so you know he started writing poetry i mean who's who is a successful poet he uh started writing poetry in college and i guess his teacher told him what you know like maybe you should fiction <laughs> and he did and he's really a very 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 successful fiction writer it's daniel handler who's lemony snicket so yeah a lot of those kinds of people who are like poetry adjacent i call them maybe that are also in there but yeah i didn't assemble the group so um i was just in, luckily invited into it and it's been one of my favorite things to do in my whole life and so i try and stick to it. Even if I'm traveling or busy, I try really hard to, to read everything and take it very seriously and then to show up every Saturday morning. Next, I asked Victoria to read a poem from Obit, which, as I've said before, is one of my favorite poetry collections of all time. I would very much recommend getting some tissues before listening to this clip, but when you're ready, take a listen. This is from Obit. Language. Died brilliant and beautiful on August 1st, 2009 at 2.46 p.m. Lover of raising his hand, language lived a full life of questioning. His favorite was twisting what others said. His favorite was to write the world in black and white and then watch people try and read the words in color. Letters, 
used to skim my father's brain before they let go. Now his words are blind, are pleaded, are the dispatcher, the dispatches, and the receiver. When my mother was dying, I made everyone stand around the bed for what would be the last group photo. Some of us even smiled because dying lasts forever until it stops. Someone said, take a few. Someone said, say cheese. Someone said, thank you. Language fails us in the way that breaking an arm means an arm's bone can break, but the arm itself can't break off unless sawed or cut. My mother couldn't speak, but her eyes were the only ones that were wide open. That was, I'm about to cry. <laughs> that just take your breath away and you're just trying to, yeah, bite back tears. I'm wondering if you could read My Mother's Teeth on page 18. That is one of my favorites. And I will cry, full disclosure. My mother had like dentures and, and I always thought that uh, there's like one pair of dentures and it turned out there are lots of dentures. So anyway, this one's called My Mother's Teeth. Die twice, once in 1965, all pulled out from gum disease. Once again on August 3rd, 2015. The fake teeth sit in a box in the garage. When she died, I touched them, smelled them, thought I heard a whimper. I shoved the teeth into my mouth, but having two sets of teeth only made me hungrier. When my mother died, I saw myself in the mirror, her words in a ring around my mouth like powder from a donut. Her last words were in English. She asked for a Sprite. I wonder whether her last thought was in Chinese. I wonder what her last thought was. I used to think that a dead person's words die with them. Now I know that they scatter, looking for meaning to attach to, like a scent. My mother used to collect orange blossoms in a small, shallow bowl. I passed the tree each spring. I always knew that grief was something I could smell, but I didn't know that it's not actually a noun, but a verb, that it moves. Next, Victoria and I chatted about the importance of reading poetry out loud. Take a listen. I think it's really important. I mean, I read when I'm, so right now I'm in the mode of revising this, this particular manuscript that I'm working on. And every single day, if I can grab some time, I will revise by reading my poems aloud. And um, so I'm constantly just hearing language even through my own mouth. And sometimes if I don't understand a poem, which is always, I'll just read it aloud. And if I don't understand it, it's fine. I'll just hear it and I'll um, absorb the the way that the words kind of bounce in my mouth and roll off my lips and the way it kind of hits the curtain or the straw it's just fine if I don't understand whatever it is the poet was trying to communicate sonically is a form of I think sonic understanding is another form of comprehension I think our, we have this idea that language has to have meaning. And I'm, I like to think about language as not always having to have meaning. 
I completely agree with what you're saying, that um, the value in a poem can definitely come from its sonic quality versus the meaning of the language itself. It reminds me of a collection of essays I read a couple years ago called Close Listening, Poetry and the Performed Word. Uh, it's edited by Charles Bernstein, and I could be completely misremembering it, but if I remember correctly in it, he talks about like a, a post-written poetic practice uh, that poetry on a page is considered widely to quote-unquote stabilize ancient oral formulaic traditions but in the age of slam and spoken word poetry communities are stepping away from poetry as a print-based medium which you know democratizes language in a really cool way um i can only remember a couple contributors to that collection but i remember a language poet nick piombino saying that um Contemporary poets seem to be like stepping away from poetry for merely private consumption, which means that a focus is being drawn towards sonic qualities. Uh, and in that text, I also remember an essay about poetry out loud in the Black Arts Movement and how memorization was a super important tactic. So do you think that poems should be memorized? Is, is that the best way to recite poetry from memory? Sure. I mean, it can be. I think for some people, it's hard to memorize stuff. Like I... um it depends on what kind of learner you are. My best friend in college just had this ridiculously wicked memory for song song lyrics. And so every time we'd hear a song together, I just realized that she would have memorized it already. And I was still there like trying to remember that like the, I could remember like one or two lines. And so I actually really struggled to memorize poetry. Um, but I definitely think like the certain poems with those, you know, more iambic rhythms, were way easier to remember for me than any other kinds of poems. Um, and there was a poet that I met when I was younger, Beth Ann Fennelly, who was just this, you know, really um, amazing memorizer of poems. I was like, oh, that's a gift. I don't have that gift. So I think it can be helpful to read aloud and to tap along. For me, it's like, that's how I learned, you know, all of the, the scansion and scanning poems and the rhythm of more traditional poems and then incorporating that into my free, free verse. So I think it's, you know, like, I feel like every learner is different in finding your own entrance or um, entryway into poetry. It could be sonic for sure. Um, so yes, I do think it can be valuable. Do you memorize your poetry? No, I'm terrible at memorizing. I can't. I, I don't even know what poems that I don't even know what my own poems. Like I can't, I have a really bad memory. And I also, um, I always say I kind of live in the future. So like whatever's gone, it's gone. Like I don't, I try not, I try really hard not to think too much about it. And like, but things, you know, the mem memory in the past definitely appear in my poems, but a lot of it's fabrication, if that makes sense. As I've mentioned to you before, and as I've mentioned in this very interview before, I think that Obit is one of the greatest poetry collections to come out not only in the last couple of years, but ever. Like, seriously, I, I mean, I've personally dealt with a lot of grief, and Obit has been a strangely comforting collection, as it makes me feel less alone. Your poetry is so incredibly honest when it comes to writing about grief. So my next question is... What advice do you have for writers who want to write about grief, who might be too scared to do so, to go to that scary place in their mind? Yeah, it's really hard to write about grief. 
I mean, it's hard to be feeling like you're grieving. And I think that so much of so much of our lives are sort of trying to get over grief. We're, we're trained in this culture in particular to move through things and feelings very quickly. Um, and I think that the, what I would say is that it's okay to, to, to be a, a grieving person or to have a grieving disposition um, or to feel like that is more of a transparent emotion for you than, or maybe a more prevalent emotion for you than even happiness or joy that we're supposed to feel more often. Um, and just to let it, like to live in it is a way to start maybe even beginning to be able to write, you know, from that angle or to write into it or through it or around it kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, I think it's always interesting to write about something without naming it. I've been thinking a lot about that because I'm going to be teaching a class on a short course on W.S. Merwin. And I just wrote a writing exercise that is kind of like that, like write a, a political poem or a social poem or something like that without naming it. And I think that could be something fun to try if you're trying to write into or toward grief, like try writing about a certain thing that you're grieving without naming it. That could be kind of interesting. Maybe, maybe what I'm getting at too is sometimes the things that make us afraid to write are, is it's it's the thing itself. And so we don't name it. Maybe it might be easier to start writing about it by not naming it. That's such a gorgeous answer. Thank you for answering that question. It was a big one. Uh, I guess my follow-up to that would be, how do you start writing, especially when you're in the emotional trenches? Like what inspires your writing and your writing practice? Yeah, I think to start writing, like writing, writing, like I feel like I, I have to have something that is really bothering me or itching me or, you know, like like I mentioned the the tree that was cut down that was traumatizing for me in so many different ways. And the only way I felt like I could sort of process through that kind of um, experience and loss was to write to that tree about that tree. And so that started the new things that I started working on. And then it kind of morphed into something else. You know, when I was working on the Agnes Martin manuscript, I had been asked to write one poem from the MoMA and pick a any art piece. And I just had a really hard time with it, but I picked Agnes Martin because I liked Agnes's work and I had read the writings a long time ago. And so that, I started that. And then it just kept on calling me to write more. I wasn't done writing, looking at her work, beautiful artistic work. And I was also going through kind of a hard time. And so it all came together through that writing. So I think for me to actually sit down and draft things, it's like I have to feel that impulse, that urge, that um, inability to not write, if that makes sense. But I, th I think that's a pretty, people call it, people see it's like an itch or an image or like for me, it's a, it has to be something very deep inside me that is emotional and and I'm feeling something that has to has to be sort of expelled from my body in some way or explored more deeply or um yeah and then that kind of gets me going 
Something that I've been thinking about during this conversation since you said it was your response to my question about reading poetry out loud. And I think that a lot of folks might be a little less scared of poetry if they approached it from your perspective of focusing on the sonic quality of the poem over, you know, overanalyzing the meaning of its language. And I feel like that is or could be more of a communal effort versus a personal pursuit, which is why poetry communities are so important. So on that note, what are your thoughts on poetry communities? I mean, I think for me, poetry and community are together. You know, they're not, they've never been separated for me. And I don't think of myself as grabbing community or, you know, I think of myself as contributing and being a part of community and many different communities. I feel like I'm in service of communities too. I feel like for me, poetry isn't just sitting in isolation. I think that for me, it's about building community with other people who love something that you love in the same way you join a, a club. And so I think that you have to give, you have to um, contribute in order to get the most that you can out of a community. And I think what people sometimes misunderstand about community is, is just there for you to take from. But I think that you don't get anything if you don't give anything first um, or back, you know? So it's always been a big part of my poetics, if that makes sense, probably equally, if not more important than my own writing. And so I think of poems in conversation too with other things and other people, other poems. And so, yeah, I think it's very important. And I feel so lucky and privileged to be a part of this, that community. It's just one of many communities that I'm a part of. And when I was younger and more isolated, I think that I had to go find my own community. So I think at every point in your life, um, and make communities. And I think we can, we always have to be a part of a poetic community or poetry community. Otherwise the world flattens us or just suck can suck us up. And then we can feel like very lost and isolated as poets and artists. And so I think it's important to always seek out community, whatever that might be for, for each individual at a particular time. And it wasn't until recently that, you know, I could be a part of different kinds of communities. And so I, I feel like I've always felt like I need, I needed it myself. I know that you have kids. Uh, do you include them in your poetry communities? Do you inflict poetry onto them? Not really. I mean, I read poems to them when they were younger and read a lot to them when they were younger, but they don't seem White is interested in poetry. They have other interests. So not really my place to sort of push things on them. But occasionally if I'll, if I read something, I'm like, oh, and they happen to be there. I'll be like, read this, you know, or let me read this to you. And I don't know how much they're actually paying attention or care, but, you know, obviously they know I write poems and then I give them the books that I've written and give them other books. But to me, it's like, Poetry is kind of like the thing that I'm interested in. So as much as I can encourage them to pay attention to language, they might have their other interests. And it's more like my, I think my, of my role as a parent to be more of just giving them a, you know, menu of, of things and they can decide themselves 
what they enjoy um, at whatever time that they enjoy those things. Next, I asked Victoria about what she's working on right now. Take a listen. What am I working on? I mean, it's a manuscript of poems, sort of, yeah. Um, I've been really interested in prose poems since I started writing that book, Obit. Um, I have a book coming out in 2024, and it's um, that's different than the one I'm working on, but it is a book of ekphrastic poems on the visual art of Agnes Martin, and those are also prose poems in this new manuscript that I'm working on. It's um, called The Tree of Knowledge, and it's just, it, it just really stemmed from um, the neighbor cutting down this massive eucalyptus tree, and it just broke my heart. So it started, I started writing um, sort of about that tree, and then it kind of turned into lots of other things. So it uh, became like a book of travel, a book of looking at visual art. And it just, it's also very ekphrastic. So it's kind of like a mishmash. I'm not exactly sure yet. I'm, I'm so excited to read your new collection next year. I am going to pre-order it as soon as possible. Uh, it's so crazy. You're such a professional poet person planning a book a year in advance. <laughs> what? advice do you have for folks who want to be professional poet people, especially younger up-and-coming poets? Yeah. Um, I meet those people all the time because sometimes people will bring their child to a reading and, you know, like um, other times a young person will come up to me and talk about how they, a really young person, like high school kids and even younger, actually middle school kids sometimes, and they'll come and meet me or come into a reading. And then, I mean, I think that's the kind of stuff you you do. It's like, you just keep reading and then going to um, poetry readings and then, and then talking to poets, you know, cause poets aren't pretty accessible. It's not like, you know, it's not like you can't, it's like actually musicians are some really you know, smaller bands. They're, they're really accessible to um, you know, play in small venues and things like that. And so I think that it's just, you know, read a lot and then go meet the poets and um, poets are real people. And I think so much about being a poet is being a real person and you have to live your life. And so live your life and, and see and feel deeply. I think poets are people that are very sensitive and we have, I always think about our skin is tingling, you know, I feel like our fingers are tingling all the time. We're tingly people. And so I think people who get into poetry are naturally you know, perceivers, you know, sensitive people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think just to, to just love it and do it and just write it and read it and not take the whole, um, you know, hobiz so seriously. <laughs> I am 100% going to second that assertion. Uh, poets are very sensitive people. Um, as a follow-up question, what advice would you have for folks who want to write more, who are developing a poetry practice? Yeah, I mean, I never really had a lot of time to write poetry and wasn't always interested in finding that time to write poetry throughout my life. And so now I do. I have a very avid interest in writing poetry as process more than product, if that makes sense. So poetry has become more of a 
practice versus, a, you know, something that you're doing to make a product. So for me, I feel like it's become essential to write as a way to live because it's like, um, and I've said this so many times because I feel like it's, I really believe it. It's breathing or drinking water. You know, it's just a part of daily stuff. And so that's just a change in my process of writing. And I think largely I'm sitting in one of these kids' rooms. You know, I think it's because these children that I have are grown. And so <laughs> they're almost grown. One is learning how to drive and the other one is almost 15. So it's just giving me more time and I will grab that time and take it as fast as I can and as much of it as I can now. So I'm still really busy, but it's not that other kind of busy. And so I've just been writing a lot and every day. And so, yeah, and people will say, oh, you're so prolific. And I was like, yes, I am, because I wasn't for 90% of my life. And so I'm just happy to, to be in the space that I'm in and I'm not gonna apologize for it. So that's, that's what I've been saying to myself. This has been an episode of Having a Coke with You, the Poetry Society of New York podcast. Thank you so much to Victoria Chang for having a Coke with me today. Victoria, you are one of my favorite poets, and this was such a bucket list moment for me. So thank you so much for making that possible. And uh, if you need an extra poet to add to your super secret poetry group, just shoot me an email. Dova at PoetrySocietyNY.org. Uh, thank you to the Radio Drama Network for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to our editor, Debs Baird, and all of the staff of PSNY for your incredible support. And most importantly, thank you to you all for listening. I wonder who we'll talk to next. Tune in every Friday to find out.